Episode 19 Part 2 Origin A man named Everell Gander was born in Elkhart, Indiana, in 1920. His father was an engineer and his mother a schoolteacher. He was the sixth of eight children. He often joked that his parents had given him his unusual first name so they would not forget about him completely. He volunteered for service in the Second World War and spent time aboard a submarine in the Pacific Theater. Returning stateside, he landed at the port of Seattle, where he saw an ad on a bulletin board seeking loggers. Within two days, he was on a crew living in a company-owned boarding house in the small town of Prince, Washington. Everill relished being outdoors all day after the confinement of the submarine, and the trees gave him cover when he needed it. The submarine, you see, had made him different. He could not say how, only that at some point he had stepped outside of himself, and when he had returned, his body no longer fit him very well. He remained sturdy and powerful throughout his life, but looked years older than he was. He had jowls by the age of twenty-six. Everill started out on the logging crew as a choker-setter. He fastened cables around felled logs, signaled with a spin of his index finger, and sprang away as the whistle-punk delivered two blasts from his instrument. The log raced through the brush like a snake. Despite his size and apparent age, Everill's leaps to safety were a thing of wonderment. He seemed to get higher and stay up longer than was humanly possible, as if God were weighing him for future reference. "'It's because I'm free,' he explained to those who marveled. "'A guy can't jump like that on a submarine.' Everill's daytime world was green and scented with the benign blood of timber. It resounded with saws, axes, bulldozers, and trucks doing their duty. Trees bowed in reverence for their lost lives and crashed. Men shouted, not in terror or rage, but to confirm that all were out of harm's way. The battle with nature was titanic, but orderly. Only occasionally did Everill glimpse a thing in the forest that the others could not have been expected to see. Occasionally a red cloud rippled through the trees. Inside the cloud, pale faces flashed, as if the cloud were lit up by lightning. The faces shouted gibberish that made Everill's skin crawl. Sometimes he flinched and whimpered in response, and if his fellow logger saw him, he had to think fast. Woo! he shouted. What a world! What a crazy world this is! He shadow-boxed and did push-ups, even did a cartwheel or two, as his friends nodded, bemused. You're a wild man, Everill, they said. In the evening the crew repaired to Prince's lone bar. Everill invented and danced jigs, which he called the gander and the goose. These dances discharged the residual traces of the image from his soul. But when Everill lay in his bed and the night closed around him, he was a sitting duck. As rain pummeled the roof, the cloud spread itself across his vision until he couldn't see anything else. So most nights Everill got out of bed. Most nights walking functioned as sleep. He walked fast, blinking rain out of his eyes. First Street was obsidian black. Reflections of streetlights rushed into gutters with the water. The cloud hovered a few feet in front of him. Everill swiped at it, flinging raindrops right and left as he tried to clear it from his eyes. "'Son of a bitch!' he shouted. He turned right at the traffic signal between the diner and the gas station. He passed the farriers, still doing a brisk business on draft horses worked to the bone from dragging logs. The pavement gave way to dirt, and Everill turned again and skirted the north end of town past the sawmill, where the night shift was pushing screaming trees through the blades. Fingers of rain reached into his collar. The cloud rippled, taunting him. He grabbed at it, but it was as far away as the edge of the universe. He thought he heard the pale faces laughing. One day, just before the lunch whistle, he spotted the cloud and decided to have it out once and for all. "'I'll be right back,' he said to the foreman. He was being destroyed by something that did not even exist. There was no reason he could not take these pale guys and their magic carpet, or whatever, out. 
He was a wild man, and what were they? Sprites at most, sickly and weak. He followed them into the forest until he was sure none of the logging crew could hear him. Face me, he shouted. I'm sick and tired of this hide-and-seek game. Show yourselves. Make your demand of me. Be men, if that's what you are. But apparently they were not men. The faces looked at him with open mouths and hollow eyes. The cloud swallowed them, and together they sank into the hushed glade. Everill stood alone. Well, wasn't that what he'd wanted? But it had been too easy. These guys weren't gone for good. They had gone somewhere to lie in wait. Everill turned and headed back to the job site, shaking from head to toe. His senses were tender as a new wound. Everill smelled the stew the men were eating from their thermoses long before he could see them. Carrots, onions, stringing cubes of beef. They poured it into metal cups and masticated, stabbed it with folded slices of bread. They laughed. Soon flickers of color appeared among the trees, hard hats resting on logs, woolen shirts. Breath mingled with steam from the cups and rose with the men's speech. Everill gathered their words like silvery minnows into a net. He was nearly back now, back with his friends. Freddy, the rigging-slinger, said, "'Where's Everill? I thought he went off to take a dump, but that's a pretty involved dump, if you ask me.' He probably wandered off. That was Everill's roommate, Charlie, the bucker. You know he walks around town all night. He never sleeps. You see the way he jumps sometimes, like he's seen a ghost? He starts dancing around to make it look like nothing's wrong. Freddy, demonstrating. He's a wild man. Unclear who said that. All murmured assent. It was the submarine, the foreman, Dave, said. Anyone would be a little touched after all those months in a metal tube under the water. I had a dream about him once. This was Stevie, the faller, who was no more than eighteen and looked like an overgrown twelve-year-old. The men treated him that way, too, gently. Possibly this was because he could wield the gigantic new chainsaw all by himself. What kind of dream, Stevie? I dreamed Everall was a tree. I was about to cut him down, not knowing it was him at first. He just looked like a regular dug fir, only actually a little bigger. I fire up the saw and the teeth are just about to bite in, and then Everall bends down and says, Whoa there, what are you doing? He's not mad, he's just asking-like. And I say, I'm doing my job, Everall. And then he doesn't say anything, but he bends down and picks me up, and then he carries me all the way out to the seashore. And he says, look. Then what? I saw water and waves crashing on big rocks. There was no color, everything was black and white, like in a photo. That was it, that was the end of the dream. You're a wild man, Stevie. Not as wild as Everall. More laughter. Charlie said, your dream was right, he ain't quite human. The howl boiled up through the soles of Everill's feet. His mouth opened and became a volcano, spewing sorrow for whatever he had done to cut himself off from his fellow man. It was later said, although never proved because the tree in question was cut down, that the howl caused all the needles on the Douglas fir he was standing under to fall off. One man dropped his stew, another gasped. Charlie crossed himself twice. All stared in the direction of the howl, but saw nothing except a shadow moving behind the trunk of the bare tree. A minute later, Everill appeared, rubbing the palms of his hands together. "'Sorry about taking off like that,' he said. "'Nobody swiped my lunch, did they?' "'Did you hear that?' Stevie asked him. "'Hear what?' "'That sound,' said Freddy, "'like an animal howling, only like it was trying to say something.' Everill shrugged. "'Guess I missed it, but you know, what a world this is, eh?' The men finished lunch and went back to work. But from that day on, they were all a little jumpy. They looked over their shoulders, they stared at strange shadows, of which there were many in the forest. They paid closer attention to the stories the Indians told them at the bar about the Siatko, the lost tribe, enormous hairy men who threw sticks and sometimes kidnapped children. Without intending to, Everhill had opened a few cracks in the logger's reality. Enough, he figured, to give himself some breathing room next time the cloud showed up. 
But it did not show up. It was, evidently, truly gone. Perhaps Everill's howl had banished it along with its inhabitants. His prehistoric grief had scared them off. As time passed, Everill's wariness faded, and a peace settled down upon him. He stopped walking at night and started sleeping. He dreamed of a house, something like the one he'd grown up in, but it was new and all his own, full of rooms he had not even realized were there. In the rooms were luxurious couches, fireplaces with polished andirons, and carpets that glittered. When he bent down he found gold coins embedded in the pile. Everill woke feeling rested and curious. The other men noticed the change in him, too. At first they did not know what to make of it. The jittery Everill who danced and boxed with the air was no more. In his place was a serenely nodding figure who seemed as wise as his apparent years. "'What's wrong with you, Everill?' the other men asked. "'You feeling all right?' "'Never better.' It was undeniable. He set the chokers as deftly as he always had and leapt away. But now the leaps were normal, earthbound as everyone else's. When Everill leaned against a tree trunk, calmly examining first the sky, then the pine litter under his feet, some tried rushing at him, yelling, Boo! But he did not flinch. He smiled and rubbed his chin, and the man who had rushed at him slunk away, wondering what had gone so wrong with his own life that he would want to startle a peaceful soul like that.